Whether you've just been blindsided by your child's diagnosis, or you've been in the trenches of their complex medical needs for a while, Empowered by Hope is here for you. Though we wish you didn't know this heartache, we're so glad you found us so together we can walk this journey in hope. Welcome to the Empowered by Hope podcast. This is Emily Whiting this morning. I, just being super transparent with you all, it is 5.30 in the morning when I am recording this, trying to get it in before the kids wake up, and I am nursing my coffee, and I am just so grateful to be here with you. This is an episode that I have long thought of, but have not quite been ready to record. Uh, We left, uh, we dangled a little bit of a carrot several weeks ago, might have even been a couple months ago at this point, talking about how there was some big news in Charlotte's care and that there would be, you know, stay tuned because there would be some upcoming episodes sharing that news. But I hadn't been ready to share what that news was. It's been a interesting discovery, earth shattering, and yet also not really changing a whole lot of anything. It's been just very interesting. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. So this episode is going to be me finally sharing what it is that we have learned in Charlotte's care and the background that has led to that discovery. And my hope is that those of you who are listening, if you are out there and you have a child who has a rare undiagnosed disease, I hope you just really feel less alone in that space. I like to call it the um, no man's land of the rare undiagnosed disease. And the reason I say that the no man's land is because when you don't have a diagnosis, you, you know, there's some beauty to not having diagnosis, right? And the beauty that we have found in not having an over, now we have many diagnoses, right? We have over 20 or 30-ish. I'm not even sure. If you look at, you know, the problem list as they like to call it, which (laughs) it's interesting terminology. But anyway, when you look at that, it's very, very long. And so that's not the problem. We have plenty of sub-diagnoses, just like we have plenty of subspecialties. What we don't have or didn't have until recently was an overarching diagnosis to explain how did this happen and what is the syndrome, if you will, that describes what we have long called Charlotte's syndrome. So this rare undiagnosed disease, no man's land, is where you tend to wander when you don't have this diagnosis because Gosh, for so many reasons. Well, from first off, from like a documentation standpoint, insurance standpoint, IEP standpoint, which stands for Individualized Education Program. Once you hit three in the state of Ohio, your transition from Help Me Grow to an IEP. When you have a child with either developmental delays or um, physical complexities. Um, now, what it, what how that plays out outside of Ohio, I can't speak to. <laughs> I don't know, but diagnoses help to to kind of categorize you and qualify you for the necessary therapies and coverages that you need. So that's one reason it's a no man's land when you have no diagnosis, but bigger than that in our experience now, I think in other people's experience and in other syndromes or lack of a diagnosis of a syndrome, 
that might be a smaller issue or that might be like the bigger issue. But for us, the bigger issue is that there's been no one, and I mean literally no one, that I've ever met who I can really relate to in a in a bigger way, you know, in terms of like, oh yeah, we've gone through a similar journey with medical things. Now, are there lots of people that I can relate to on smaller scale of, or well, I don't mean smaller scale, that's the wrong choice of words, but on, on individual diagnoses that Charlotte has? Yes. You know, like cleft lip and palate or Ashlyn and I obviously can relate a lot on Euro, uh, urogenital anomalies and how that affects gastro and all of that. But but I've never met anybody who has agenesis of the corpus callosum, who has cardiac muscle myopathy, who has narrowed aorta of the heart, who has the colidocal cysts on the liver and the malformed liver and the malformed gallbladder and the diverticulitum. And oh my gosh, I could keep going and going and going. <laughs> Ectopic ureters and a small bladder and hydronephrosis and just so many things, right? Ear pits, <laughs> hearing loss, pigmentation of the retina, so many things. And so, of course, there's great value in finding different individuals who can relate to the cardiac issues, to the cleft issues, to the urogenital issues, to the gastro issues, to um, even agenesis, which actually, I guess I've never met anybody who I can relate to on that specific thing. But all that to say, I've never met anybody who can kind of be like, oh, yeah, the combination of all those issues, I get it, you know? And more even than that, what puts us in the no man's land is when you don't have a diagnosis and you have so many complexities, you often float with all these specialties involved and yet nobody steering the ship besides the parent. There is no, you know, like you go through pregnancy and you have the maternal fetal medicine doctor who's kind of like the head of all the people involved with that pregnancy. And then you go to the NICU and the neonatologist is in charge and he or she is coordinating care and managing across all the specialties and is kind of the go-to for you as the parent and the patient. And then you become outpatient and there is no captain, if you will, steering the ship at that point. You, and I remember when we were in the NICU, the neonatologist telling me, because I kept begging him to send us home early. And he was like, Emily, you really don't want to go home too soon. First off, obviously for Charlotte's care, but second off, you, and I don't remember the exact words he used, but I do remember being very surprised by them. Basically him saying, like, once you're out of here, you're out of the nest. And when you're out of the nest, you're on your own and you do not want to be on your own with such a complex kid just yet. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but now six years into it, I do. So I'm going to share a whole lot more about that in this episode. And I just hope that, you know, all of those who are listening, if you do have a diagnosis, you know, you might be able to relate to this still because even though you have, I mean, the diagnosis is not just the answer, right? It's an answer that can help with things, but it doesn't solve things. It doesn't take away what you're facing. It doesn't, you know, there's a lot of things it doesn't provide, <laughs> but um, there's also a lot of things that it can help with. So 
I hope that as you're listening, um, you know, this just can provide some comfort. And for those of you who find yourselves being the captain of the medical ship of your child, I hope that um, you just feel a little less alone in that adventure and that immense responsibility, that task that you never foresaw having or taking on that you probably feel ill-equipped to do. And yet um, I'm here to tell you, you are very equipped and that's what we're here for. Um, So we're going to talk about that. And then we're also going to just, I'm just going to divulge exactly what diagnosis we've discovered, how we discovered it, and what it means for Charlotte's future. I will say, as you all noticed by now, Miss Ashlyn is not with me, my co-host. I'm so bummed to not have her with me. As many of you know, her daughter, Emery, who has bladder extrophy, is um, actually still recovering from a very extensive surgery that they went to London, England to have performed uh, to help her move towards better continence. I think continence is the right word, but they're still going through a pretty grueling recovery. And so while we've been able to sneak in, I think one or maybe two episode recordings while she's in the UK, we just decided to pump the brakes and you know, completely unplug and let them recover before she comes back on here. Um, because it just got to be too much trying to jump on and record and be with the kids and all that. I don't want to speak for Ashlyn, but I do know just, you know, simple things like diaper changes uh, requires two people at this point still. And at this point, she's almost a month post-op, I believe, three, three or four weeks. But not only the pain of the diaper change because of a catheter that's there, and of course, it's a surgery site, but um, the trauma from what has been done in the diaper area has caused Emery to just, you know, completely resist, we'll say, (laughs) diaper changes. And so it requires two people, and uh, it's an all-hands-on-deck kind of thing, so... If you guys, you know, if you wouldn't mind saying a prayer for Ashlyn and Emery, I know today, and of course, by the time this airs, this will be a little late, but that's okay. Prayers will still be very relevant. This will air in a week from when I'm recording it now. But today, as I'm recording it, they are going back into London. They were on the outskirts of the city um, for recovery time, but they're going back into the hospital today and they're going to pull the catheter and see if Emery's able to make a diaper on her own. And um, that's a very, very big deal. And if she's not, they'll have to put the catheter back in, I believe, and wait even longer to see if that healing process allows her to uh, avoid on her own. So send some prayers and some well wishes her way. And we're just going to hope and pray that things go well today. She actually um, went in for this exact test last week and ended up having to place the catheter back in because Emery wasn't able to make a diaper, which makes perfect sense. It's a very sore area from surgery. And what child or individual would want to, you know, to make a diaper when you are sore, right? Plus you also have new anatomy that you're getting used to using. And that's just very strange in a little two-year-old body. So I very much wish I had Ashlyn here with me because if you have heard us do podcasts together, you know that the dynamic between us is um, honestly irreplaceable. I love doing episodes with Ashlyn because um, I just feel like what I do just amplifies and we just, you know, what could be good as one individual people gets 
10 times better when we're together. And um, she just knows how to spur the conversation on, ask the right questions, say the right things that just makes it such a dynamic conversation. So I'll do the best I can (laughs) by myself today. So, okay, going back, and some of you know more about the story than others. So six years ago, back in 2017, when we were pregnant, you know, we were in the ultrasound room and we discovered that Charlotte had anomalies head to toe. At the time, they could see it involved her brain, her heart, her kidneys, her liver, and her lips. And at that time, there was no known diagnosis. We did an amniocentesis, which is where they stick a... <laughs> a very, very, very long needle through the abdomen wall, through the uterine wall into the, oh my gosh, I'm losing the technical terminology, but basically the sac that holds the baby. Oh my gosh, the amniotic sac. Yeah. And then they draw out some fluid and they send it off for genetic testing, right? So that so it doesn't hurt the baby, but they pull out some of that fluid around the baby that has his, the baby's DNA. And then they send that off to the lab to do initial testing. So we did that. And that's a whole nother episode to talk about the pros and cons of an amniocentesis. So before I get distracted with that topic, they sent off the DNA and we waited for several weeks. And of course, with bated breath and thinking that, you know, we might get this huge diagnosis that explains what we're seeing. Well, we got the results back and it said everything was fine. It didn't discover anything. But you look at the ultrasound and clearly everything was not fine. And I'm not sure what all genetic testing they ended up doing because it's all kind of a blur at this point. But throughout our pregnancy, they basically did every genetic test that they could until the baby was born. And all of them said that Charlotte was developmentally typical, which we clearly knew was not the case. So whatever she had, we knew it was not something our genetic test at the moment could pick up, right? At least not the ones that we could do while in utero. So then she was born and we did the whole exome sequence, which at the time, this would have been in 20, I guess it would have been December, 2017. This whole exome sequence is where they take a blood draw of me, of dad and of baby, and they send it off to a lab and uh, takes, I don't know, I think it was like six weeks of processing to determine if they could pick anything up. Well, it picked up a couple things, but none of them actually described the symptoms that Charlotte presented. And so our genetics counselor said, you know, we're going to keep these in our back pocket. We're, you know, we're aware of them, of these genetic anomalies, but we don't really see how they're presenting in Charlotte's case. There was this particular gene called M12 or MED12. Now I'm no geneticist, so... (laughs) But I'm very good at taking medical jargon and putting it in layman's terms. So I'm just going to stick with that skill set here. So they found this MED12 genetic variant. And basically what they knew at the time was that in male patients, it presented with a lot of developmental anomalies from like developmental delays, right? And Charlotte we didn't know if that was going to be the case for Charlotte, but it didn't, it didn't have like these male patients didn't have the physical anomaly Charlotte did. And so it didn't really make sense that this gene that we clearly knew coded differently and coded differently in a way that would cause boys to have developmental delays didn't seem to present the same with Charlotte. Right? So once again, we just kind of were like, okay, we'll put that in our back pocket. Don't know what it means, but for now it doesn't really mean anything. (laughs) So fast forward about, well, it was October of last year. 
we had reached a point in our care where we were so desperate for answers. And here's the thing about diagnosis. It gives you answers to a point, but honestly, we were happy not having a diagnosis for quite a while because in our minds, it didn't put her in a box of expectations. There was no like, oh, well, other patients when they hit three have this problem or when they hit five have this problem or, you know, there were zero expectations because from what we knew, this was uncharted water. You know, Charlotte was a brand new individual. I mean, everybody is a brand new individual, but a brand new syndrome that had never been followed before. I assumed that there were plenty of people out there who probably had had Charlotte's syndrome before, but they just probably didn't survive or were wandering around also undiagnosed and I had never met them yet, which I believe still that that is true. (laughs) Both of those is very true. I think probably a lot of babies who have the anomaly Charlotte has never made it well, they might have made it through pregnancy, but wouldn't have made it much past delivery if they didn't have super close monitoring and were quickly addressed with the urinary issues and the cardiac issues. So all that to say, honestly, we were happy not having a diagnosis for quite a while. We just felt that it kept us in this space where Charlotte could bloom to whatever extent that she was going to bloom. She could be whoever she was going to be. And we had zero preconceived notions of what that would be, right? Which of course has its pros and cons because it feels, again, like you're kind of feeling around in the dark and you have no trajectory of what life's going to look like. But on the other hand, you have no trajectory of what life's going to look like. So let it happen, right? So that was kind of our approach. We were, we were cool with it. But we got to the end of last summer. And as many of you know, we were struggling with this chronic acute pain and we could not figure out the source. We knew that gastro uh, had something to do with it. We knew that her digestive system was not operating the way that it should. She was around, uh, well, she was past potty training age and there was just no progress towards true potty training. And that was after, you know, a year of one-on-one psychology with somebody specially trained in gastro. And that was after a year of what they call poop school, <laughs> oh, which cracks me up still, but basically where, and it's, it was the cutest thing. Oh my gosh. Where every week they gathered all these kids who had incontinent issues and, um, they would train them and teach them about your body and about pooping and, how to do it on the potty and all these things. And it was so fun and so cute, but we had zero success, absolutely zero progress. And it was not for lack of Charlotte trying. My goodness, if there's ever a child who is willing to try anything you ask of her, it is Charlotte. And she tried everything and she stayed so positive and so open-minded and there was no movement toward potty training. So that's when I knew we had anatomy issues. That was not anything she was going to be able to change. But we still didn't know what that issue was. And so, and then we're in this immense pain and we discover that a large explanation of it is this atrophied ureter. So basically when she was born, she had, um, you know, all the normal anatomy of a urinary system, but it all was plumbed incorrectly. So envision like your, <laughs> your sink with all the right plumbing, but all the um, pipes are going the wrong direction, basically. So she had had three surgeries already or maybe even four on her urinary system. And, and we had thought that our issues from a urinary standpoint were behind us. 
And I kept going back to the urologist saying, but I know when she has this severe pain, it's gastro and it's uro. I can tell because it's right in the lower abdomen and it's right in the lower right back, right where the kidney is, right where the nephrostomy tube used to be when she was a baby. So I think just to appease me, (laughs) they placed the nephrostomy tube because they were convinced that the kidneys were just fine. And they were ready to even pull it because they didn't think it was successful. But I was like literally over my dead body. You are not pulling that thing because we went from being on the floor in pain for days to at least being able to sit up in a bed in pain now. So we've seen some relief. So from that, a series of tests led us to the fact that she has this atrophied ureter, which basically means the bottom third of her ureter is dying. It's down to a tiny little wisp. It's like, you know, the urine has a place to go through a big hose at the top of the ureter, and then it gets down to like a fishing wire before it gets to the bladder. So huge hydronephrosis, which means uh, urine not being able to get out of the kidney, basically, or going back up into the kidney, which is obviously a huge risk for infection, pain, yada, 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 you know, scarring of the kidney. So we get these discoveries. We have huge gastro issues. We have huge urology issues. But at this point, the fact that we don't have an overarching diagnosis is starting to be a problem because I'm like, okay, If we knew her overarching issue, maybe we would know what's causing these problems. And so we went back to genetics and genetics said, you know what, there is a new test called the whole genome sequence. Let's do that. So um, it was a cheek swab of me, dad, and Charlotte again, and we sent it off in October to the lab fully knowing it would be months before we got results. And also I fully expected it would tell us nothing because no genetic tests had tell, told us anything of value yet, right? So interestingly enough, I got a call from genetics a few weeks ago. And our genetic counselor said, the results are in and we have some news for you. And it just so happened it was during a work day and I'm not sure why Daniel was home, but he was. And the kids weren't at our house. It was, I don't know what was going on. Oh, I think it was a Tuesday. The kids were at my mom's house. Mom has them on Tuesdays, which is wonderful. So I went out and I got Dan and I was like, you got to listen because genetics says they have results. And our genetic counselor starts to describe the syndrome that they believe they have discovered that Charlotte has. And I literally slumped to the kitchen floor with the phone on speaker in my hand and just my jaw dropped because it described Charlotte to the T. And nothing before had ever described Charlotte to the T. You know, there's always been like, oh, well, this person has cardiac issues and that's relevant, or this person has cleft issues and that's relevant, or this person person has uro issues and that's relevant, but never has it been where somebody has read off the diagnoses of an individual and I've thought that's Charlotte. And as she was reading off these symptoms of this syndrome, I was just in shock, just like, excuse me, what? There's somebody else out there with this series of anomalies. And turns out it was from this MED12 gene variant that they discovered back in the NICU in 2017. But since then, they have discovered that there are nine other reported cases around the world with the same MED12 variant and the same anomalies in female patients. So the problem was back in the NICU, they only had these males to go off of. 
now they have females and the females present very differently than the males. The females present with all these physical anomalies, but developmentally they are typical, meaning they don't have any developmental delays or neurodevelopmental delays which honestly is astounding and very unique. My understanding is when a patient usually has a lot of physical anomalies, it's very common to have um, neurodevelopmental anomalies too. And so for these nine patients and now 10 being Charlotte, to not have these developmental anomalies is, um, she was like, you know, that makes it even more apparent to me that this is a very fitting diagnosis because um, Charlotte doesn't have those anomalies and that's very unusual. So genetics informed us that Charlotte has this syndrome, what they are calling Hardiker syndrome. Now, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, because I have yet to speak with anyone (laughs) who has heard of Hardiker syndrome. Um, We are working with genetics right now to try to connect with these other nine individuals called a cohort, Um, these these families who uh, have been written about in the literature, and which consists of two total papers written on this syndrome. Um, but these nine patients, I've read, of course, everything that I can about them, and it's very limited amount of information, but I haven't met any of them yet. And I haven't met any of the doctors or specialists who have been involved in these other nine uh, cases, what they would call the Oh, what did she say it was called? Um, The experts. And it just made me laugh. I was, you know, when I'm on the phone with genetics and they were saying like, well, we're going to work on getting you in touch with the experts of this syndrome. And I was just like, the experts, you mean the people who've seen two total patients in their entire career that have this syndrome? And they they laughed. They were like, yep, that's what we mean. (laughs) That's what qualifies you as an expert when you have this ultra rare diagnosis. So I'm going to read to you what this Hardiker syndrome is. I don't know. I don't know if it's Hardiker, Hardiker. I'm not sure. Um, I do know that it was named after somebody in Australia who discovered it. So the genetic report says pathogenic variants in this gene have been associated with X-linked Hardiker syndrome, a multiple congenital anomaly disorder reported only in females. Features include foregut malformations, intestinal malrotation, liver and biliary tract disease, genitourinary abnormalities, hydronephrosis, cleft lip and palate, and pigmentary retinopathy. Some patients may have congenital cardiac defects or vascular abnormalities, including aortic coarctation and carotid intracranial aneurysms. Interestingly enough, other than the aneurysm fact, we have all of those things. Now, as I've read more through the different uh, papers seems like that presents much later in um, the, the different cases, and so we're already on that with cardio to say, you know, what do we need to do to be ahead of that? Um, because, to my understanding, of the nine patients who are reported, two are no longer with us today um, due to a combination of vascular issues. And it's interesting too, because I actually just recently called our complex care pediatrician and said, you know, I think one 
stone we have left unturned is her vascular system because we know her urinary system needs work done. We know her GI tract has issues. We can't identify the root causes of either one's issues other than we probably are are assuming that the, the reason the ureter has atrophied is because of blood supply. And so I'm like, you know, and every surgeon, and there's been 15 of them who has come out of the OR has said her vascular system is unusual. And so I'm like, isn't that something we should probably look into? And then I read this and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what a good confirmation that I should be listening to my, my, you know, intuition that there's a stone left unturned. So just fascinating. And then here, you know, it also talks about how cognitive abnormalities are not typical for Hardikar syndrome. And that's what I was saying, how um, neurodevelopmentally they're very typical. So I'm looking through this case report and um, it's just fascinating. You know, it's, of course, it's covered in highlighter for me <laughs> of things to think about. Um, and interestingly, for Charlotte's care, you know, I said at the beginning, it changes everything and yet it changes nothing. We already have over 20 specialists involved in Charlotte's care. We already have, you know, most of these, if not all of these areas covered with individuals monitoring Charlotte in all the different aspects. So in that respect, it doesn't really change much. But what I have found it to change is I can go to these appointments and hand them the papers and the genetics report and say, we now know what her syndrome is. And now there's nine reports out there or nine cases that we can go off of with their history to have a little bit better idea of things we should monitor. And so, you know, from a gastro standpoint, we've already seen it affect different um, blood tests that we need to be doing to do different markers for potential liver cancer. Because when you have a colidocal cyst, you have a higher risk of cancer, different things like that. And I already was able to go to cardio and say, you know, two patients have have unfortunately passed from this aneurysm and um and one from hemorrhaging and so you know how do we monitor these things and get ahead of them and do we know what ultimately caused that for those other two cases and how do we how do we get proactive about it you know and i think the timing honestly of learning this diagnosis is really good in terms of if we would have learned it too much earlier I, I, it might have overwhelmed me to like a paralyzing point. <laughs> and many of you can relate because you're going, yeah, I know we got a diagnosis early and it overwhelmed us to a paralyzing point. Um, but at this point, I read these these reports and yes, they're very overwhelming with the amount of issues, but honestly, we already have them. We already have all these issues. We already know about all these issues. So all it does is affirm to me, you know, I know it sounds silly, but from a, a like a mental standpoint, it helps me take a deep breath and go, okay, yeah, we're not crazy. Yeah, we have all these issues and other people do too. So that's been a great help. So from a day-to-day standpoint, it doesn't change much, but I'm really hoping that it can change a lot in terms of, I mean, how amazing would it be? I have this total vision of Charlotte's Hope Foundation being unifying for these nine cases and for all the others out there who are like Charlotte, who have been walking around undiagnosed. You know, I'm sure there's more cases out there who are undiagnosed and are 
lonely and struggling with what it takes to manage a child who has so many complexities in this no man's land of rare undiagnosed disease. So I would love it for Charlotte's Hope Foundation to be a unifying space to connect them all. I even have this vision of getting everybody you know, together for a retreat at some point where we as parents and, and as the kids can all just bond and share our stories and get to know one another and support each other and love on each other. I would love to meet the parents of the children who have passed. I'm already madly in love with those two individuals. I've read their case reports and I just so wish I got to meet them. I cannot wait to wait to meet them on the other side of heaven. Oh my gosh. They just seem like such amazing souls. So, oh, yeah, <laughs> as you can see, it's probably, um, it's pretty heavy and it's interesting how, you know, I thought like, oh, sure, I can share this with our followers pretty easily, but it took me a solid month to process before I was willing to really sit down and do this episode because it's just a lot to comprehend. So where we're at right now, we're in the middle of trying to connect with the quote experts, <laughs> And I believe there's several um, in the U.S., but there are cases. So the cases, if I recall correctly, and it's been a while since I read the report, but there's some in Philadelphia, some in Virginia, some in Washington, and then Belgium, Germany. Oh, where are the others? I forget now. Brazil and a few other countries around the globe. So you know, it'll be an interesting hunt trying to learn more from all the different quote experts. And then of course, trying to get in touch with these different families, which of course, HIPAA is a challenge because, you know, unless a doctor gets a okay from the family to share their information, which of course is very uh, a good thing. Obviously we don't want doctors sharing information randomly, but, but it's not like I can just go to the expert and say, can you put me in touch with these families? Like they have to go to those families, get permission and then share their name with me. So it's a cumbersome process. And, um, you know, most parents are able to find other individuals going through their diagnoses by, you know, searching online. But I think with such a small number of people, I've had zero luck with that so far. And it's so, so it'll be really interesting to see if we're able to connect with other parents, how soon we're able to connect with other parents. Honestly, I will sob when I'm able to connect with another parent who has has gone through this because it will be the first time, like I said, that I'll have another person that really has really gets what we have been dealing with for the last six years. And of course, that doesn't minimize how much it's been phenomenal having other parents who can relate to different aspects of her care, but to have a parent who can relate to the whole kit and caboodle, honestly, <laughs> I haven't even wrapped my head around that concept that I might not be in this no man's land for too much longer. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's amazing. But interestingly enough, you know, another thing that I really envision for Charlotte's Hope Foundation, there's so many things that Ashlyn and I have visioned, and uh, I'm just so excited to see where this foundation goes and what impact it can have for children and for families who deal with pediatric complex care. But as we have this influx of more and more kids who have complex needs and who survive them... You know, somebody said it really well the other day, basically that our system as a medical system is really good at emergency and it's saving lives. But when it comes to management of life, 
and quality of life care, our system has a lot of room to grow. And that makes sense because we've only been able to, you know, save some of these kids' lives in the last 20 years. You know, like Charlotte absolutely would not have lived 20 years ago, maybe not even 10 years ago, but she is now. And But the system to then take her life and help it be as best as it can be is not in place. And what I mean by that is there is no medical home for a child like Charlotte. There is no overarching clinic for Charlotte's care. You know, sure, there's complex care clinics out there, but even they are not equipped to really handle the hands-on amount of management, proactive management that it takes for a child like Charlotte and for her care. You know, it's not like we have a diagnosis that fits within a kind of, you know, norm where like, oh, there's there's X amount of cases that we see in this hospital for this syndrome. And so we're going to have a clinic where we bring them in once a month and we go through all of their needs. That's not existent for Charlotte. You know, like I said, we have over 20 specialists involved and there's only been literally one time we've gotten them all around a table to talk. And it was when she was like four weeks old and we were trying to hash through which system we were going to save first, which surgery we were going to do first in order to give her the best chance at living. Ever since then, it has been an uphill battle to get that cross communication with specialists around a table, even to just get five around a table or two or three. (laughs) Oh my gosh. The uphill battle is insane. And oftentimes we're told, you know, that the pediatrician is supposed to be the one really managing Charlotte's care. But the fact of the matter is a pediatrician's job is not set up to manage a child like Charlotte. A pediatrician's job is is set up to manage a child with maybe a couple specialties, but not 20 because it it requires somebody who is every week sitting down, looking at her chart, proactively thinking about blood work and labs and filling orders. And how do we, you know, combine this doc's order and that doc's order to lessen the amount of radiation or lessen the amount of pokes or um, lessen the amount of anesthesia? It requires somebody to sit down and think through order of surgeries and think through priority of surgeries and and is this sleep study actually worth it compared to this other test that we need to be doing? You know, that kind of thing. Gosh, I could give so many examples of the kind of coordination that is needed that is just not existent. And so I would be just elated if a result of Charlotte's Hope Foundation and of this <laughs> wild syndrome called Hardikar syndrome is that we're able to have a positive impact on what what is complex care. And and ultimately, you know, a lot of it comes down to how how these clinics are funded. And I don't mean that in a jaded way at all. It's just fact, you know, like doctors are not, there is no funding for a doctor to sit down or a nurse practitioner to sit down and proactively manage a child's care like Charlotte to the level that it's needed. And they don't have the time for it because they're ushering in how many caseloads at each and every day. So there's a lot to be done. As you can see, I have a lot of hope for the future. I'm very excited for the impact that um, I'm very hopeful that we can have in this space. And if you are walking in this no man's land of whether you have a diagnosis that's ultra rare like Charlotte's, or if you don't have a diagnosis still, just know that you are not alone. I'm here with you. There's many out there who are there with you. We just don't know them because we have no way to find them. 
(laughs) because they don't have a diagnosis, right? Oh my gosh. I know one of my next steps is reaching out to um, the National Organization of Rare Diseases. And I know there's several organizations out there for undiagnosed diseases to just connect with them and try to be a um, conduit for being there for these parents. So that's the update on Charlotte. Um, She has heart car syndrome. You know, again, it doesn't change much and yet it changes everything. And uh, it'll be really interesting to see how the next few weeks and months evolve. I'll be keeping you informed. Um, The other thing that it might affect in the most near future, and I don't foresee it doing a whole lot, you know, causing us to make different decisions, but we have a really big surgery coming up in a month. And um, I'm really eager to try to connect with these, again, quote, experts before that surgery to make sure have we left no stone unturned because it's a urinary surgery, urinary system surgery that is going to cause her to have an ostomy. And I'm not thrilled about that. It's not, it's not off the table. Obviously we're scheduled for it. We're planning on doing it. But it just doesn't seem like the best solution, not because of the ostomy itself. Plenty of people walk around with the ostomy and and I know that that's fine. But the challenge is it might be irreversible for Charlotte. So it's kind of a a very big, heavy decision that causes, um, has a lot of long-term effects on her ability to have any other choices in the future for her urinary system. And that's a hard pill to swallow. And it also has a pretty big risk of not working. So we're kind of in a tough spot from a urinary standpoint. Our The last surgeon we talked to put it very well. He said, you basically have six options and all of them have about a 50% fail rate, but failing means different things for each option. You know, failing could mean that her ureter completely atrophies the whole thing and we have to come up with another plan or failing could mean that the bladder explodes and she dies. Like there's very extreme meanings behind failing of a surgery. And so um, we're kind of in this really tough spot. So if we could get more information from how these other nine have handled their urinary issues, I, I highly doubt it would shed a whole lot of light, but I don't want to go into this surgery without exploring all those things to make sure, do we have all the information at our fingertips that we need to make this decision you know, the best that we can. So lots more to come. And it's interesting. You've been hearing a lot from me lately because Ashlyn has been very busy with Emery. And in a month, you're going to be hearing a lot from Ashlyn. We're going to reverse and flip because she'll be through the thick of post-op recovery and I will be entering into surgery and recovery. So, um, we're going to be taking turns running this um, Empowered by Hope podcast and, uh, connecting with you all. So with that, um, Thank you so much for tuning in. If you know anyone who has Hardiker syndrome, send them my way, please. <laughs> also, if you are walking through this no man's land of rare undiagnosed disease or even rare diagnosed disease, reach out to me, please, at contact at charlotteshopefoundation.org. I would love to hear from you. I would love to be there on that journey with you. And, you know, it could be healing for both of us. So thank you so much for tuning in. You are capable, you are equipped, and you are not alone. Together, we can do hard things for our children. If this episode connected with you and you want to hear more, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We would also love to learn about your personal journey and how we can support you. Reach out to us at contact at charlotteshopefoundation.org. 
And last but not least, if you know of someone who could benefit from this podcast, please share. Well, hope it builds.